Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to the disciples in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Well, those are our words from Luke chapter 24, where Jesus makes crystal clear that the Old Testament is about him. And he says this multiple times throughout Luke 24, that the Old Testament is ultimately, in some way, shape, or form, about Jesus. And so that means that when we read our Old Testament, we need to be looking for Jesus. We need to be looking for how is Christ in this text. How do we see Christ here? Sometimes this can be very easy. We have prophecies in the Old Testament that are explicitly about Jesus. Thank you, Joseph. Appreciate it. We have prophecies in the Old Testament explicitly about Jesus. So something like Psalm 53, or forgive me, Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, a very direct prophecy of a Messiah who would come and suffer for sins and uh, would, would die and would see his reward and so we have times where it's very easy. Other times it's easy is because the New Testament itself sheds light on it. The New Testament will take Old Testament passages and tell us this is what it means. This is who it was talking about. And in many of those instances, I would say probably in all those instances, it's ultimately about Christ and his church. A famous example is Psalm 110.1. The psalm where David says that the Lord of my Lord will sit at his right hand and make all enemies a footstool at his feet. This is the most often quoted Old Testament verse in all of the New Testament. Jesus brings this verse up. The apostles bring this verse up. And all of them apply this as being about Jesus. So sometimes finding Christ in the Old Testament is very easy. It's obviously, obviously there where the apostles give it to us. But I would argue most of the time this is a very difficult task. Most of the time, it's very difficult to see how is the book of Esther about Jesus? How is the book of Leviticus about Jesus? Where do we see Jesus in these texts? And this can even be a very dangerous endeavor sometimes. As we try to find Christ in the Old Testament, sometimes we will invent very spurious doctrines. And as much as I appreciate the early church fathers, and, and we very much stand on their shoulders and, and what they have done to preserve the church by this power of the Spirit, many of the church fathers were well known for really coming up with some wild theories about the Old Testament and what they mean. But the heart of what they were doing was good because they read Luke 24 and realized we have to find these New Testament themes and concepts in there. Jesus has told us we must find him in the Psalms. We must find him in the prophets. We must find him there. But it, is, it can be very difficult. And so what adds to the difficulty of this is that there are different ways that Christ can be found in the Old Testament. So we already mentioned one, prophecy, right? Maybe the Old Testament just flat out says the Messiah will be born of a virgin. The Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, right? It's, it's just a prophecy just telling us what will happen, and that's Christ. But probably the most common way that we find Christ in the Old Testament, and even this is not the only way, but the most common way is through what we call typology. Now, we've discussed typology before. Uh, it would take more than one sermon to exhaust the definition of typology. So let me just briefly remind you of what typology is. Typology is what we call nonverbal prophecy. 
It's unspoken prophecy. Typology is when a prophecy is being made, something about the future is being declared to happen, but it's not explicitly. It's not someone just flat out saying, hey, a man named Jesus will be born in Bethlehem and he will die for your sins and raise again. But rather what it is is for hundreds of years, the Jewish people had to take an unblemished lamb and sacrifice him for the sins of the people. And then when Jesus shows up, what does John the Baptist refer to him? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the book of Hebrews says that he had to be an unblemished lamb. And how does he define that? He was perfect. So we see that the sacramental system of the Old Testament was a prophecy that Christ Jesus would die for your sins. But not a verbal prophecy. It was a prophecy of, of events, a prophecy of a storyline, of repeated patterns that foreshadowed or prophesied or, or shown forth that Christ would come. And so it's very important for us to look for typological events that show Christ. And sometimes the typology can be as simple as a, as a narrative or a, what we call a story arc. Every story has an arc. And if you were to, for example, if you went to public schools and you maybe learned in basic English classes about your common story arc, you have introduction, and then you have rising conflict, and then you have conflict, and then you have climax, and then you have descending. Like, that's a story arc that many stories follow. And what we have in the Old Testament oftentimes are these stories, these narratives that have a kind of picture to them, a, a storyline to them, and then we find that Jesus' gospel fits that storyline. One of the very obvious and simple ones is Jesus tells us that Jonah was a type of Christ. And how does he say that? Because he said in the same way that Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of the fish and then came out, so too the Son of Man will spend three days and three nights in the heart of the earth and then he will come out. So Jonah has a storyline, right? A man who is persecuted, who goes under the earth and then appears three days later. And that storyline was a prophecy of the Messiah who would be persecuted, go under the earth and appear three days later. So sometimes just following a storyline is how we find Christ in the Old Testament. And so I say all this because I think it's finally time for us to be really, really explicit and see how is Christ in David and Goliath? Where do we see Jesus in 1 Samuel? We've already talked about this a little bit. This is not the first time. I mentioned uh, in multiple sermons that Samuel himself was a type for Jesus Christ. And how did we see that? Well, because Samuel fulfilled these three roles, if you recall. If you remember, 1 Samuel was a priest. He was dedicated to the temple and he became a priest. And Jesus in the New Testament is called the high priest of the church. But while Samuel was a priest, he also functioned as a prophet because he was the only one hearing the voice of God. And people were coming to him and listening to him for the voice of God. So he was both a priest and a prophet. And the book of Hebrews says Jesus came to be a prophet to reveal the Father to us. Jesus was also a prophet. And lastly, we saw that before Saul showed up, Samuel was also kind of the ruler of the Israelite people. He was going from town to town making judgments. People were obeying him. So Samuel was basically prophet and priest and king. And Christ, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. We saw that Christ fulfilled these three offices at the same time, our prophet, priest, and king. So we've seen Christ in 1 Samuel already. We've seen how 1 Samuel points us to Christ, but I think we finally have another example of it. We've learned a lot about David and Goliath, and we've applied a lot to our lives, but I think it's time for us to finish this story and hit our climax by revealing how David and Goliath is not ultimately about a young shepherd boy who beat a really big, strong man. 
David and Goliath is ultimately about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Before we do that, I need to remind you of some important things that we've seen along the way. Because when we go and start to try to find Christ in the Old Testament, one of the, reasons, one of the ways it's difficult is it's hard to know how far do these passages go. So, for example, does this mean that every single individual Old Testament verse is about Jesus? So you just go to 1 Samuel and you just read verse 1. 1 Samuel 1.1, how is that about Christ? 1 Samuel 1.2, how is that about Christ? Right? Is every individual word about Christ? And I would argue no. And I think some people, when they try to force Christ into the text, they, they limit the scope of the passage too much. And they say, how is this sentence about Christ? Or how is this paragraph about Christ? But I think when it comes to Old Testament narrative, it's the larger stories that are ultimately about Christ. It's the larger archetypical story. So I would argue, if we want to find Christ in the David and Goliath story, we need to look at both 1 Samuel 16 and 17 together, completed as a whole. That's where we find Christ, not just this individual verse there. there. So before we finish 1 Samuel 17, and that is the goal today, I want to just remind you of some things that we've seen along the way. You can turn to these verses if you would like, but I'm going to go through pretty quickly, and so I would invite you just to listen to them. But obviously, you're free to go to them. But in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 3, we read this. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him who I declare to you. So the first thing we learn about David, as we are introduced to David, is that David is the anointed one. David is anointed by God. He is the anointed one. And then we also learn how David was anointed. Look at verse 7, or here verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So speaking of Eliab, we are told Eliab was not chosen. He looked like he should be the king because he was so big and strong. But God said, My anointed is not chosen on physical standards. So we know that David is the anointed one, and that David was not chosen based off physical appearances. We also learn in 1 Samuel 16, 11, that David is a shepherd. If you rem remember, David wasn't invited to the, to, the, to the dinner at first. And Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains the, yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. David is anointed. David was not anointed on physical standards. David is a shepherd. It's significant, we've seen a little bit about Goliath already, that Goliath is David's enemy. Now, why is that significant? Why is it important for us to remember that Goliath is David's first and primary enemy? That's important because in the Hebrew, Goliath is very subtly presented to us as a serpent. Goliath is a snake of kinds. Why do I say that? Well, in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 5 through 6, describing Goliath's armor, this is what the author says. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of his coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, and he had a bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. In those two sentences, what's a word that is repeated over and over again? Bronze. Four times, the author goes out of his way to use precious writing materials to tell us that all of this is made of bronze. Now, why is that important? The Hebrew word for bronze is the, has the same root as the Hebrew word for serpent. As a matter of fact, if you were to look at the Hebrew word for bronze and look at the Hebrew word for serpent, they are almost identical. They sound almost exactly alike. 
So there's this repetition, bronze, bronze. When you think of Goliath, think of bronze, think of bronze, think of bronze. What are you thinking of? Snake, 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 snake. We also see this in the same verses. The, the ESV here renders he has a coat of mail. Uh, I would encourage you not to think about that like in the medieval coat of mail, like the, you know, like the sweaters, the big chain link sweaters they wear. That's not what this is talking about. It's talking about, and you can look up pictures of this, armor that has these little half circles of metal. As a matter of fact, the reason we know that is because the Hebrew word used here for coat of mail is actually the Hebrew word for scales. They have scales of metal, and almost every other time this word is used in the Old Testament, it's used to describe the scales of a fish or could be used to describe the scales of a snake. Goliath is a scaly serpent. David's enemy is subtly hinted at as being this giant serpent, like a dragon. We even, by the way, I don't want to give something away too much, but uh, what we're going to see in 1 Samuel 17 is that when David finally triumphs over Goliath, the text is going to tell us very explicitly that Goliath falls on his face. It's going to tell us very explicitly he falls face first to the ground. Why do we need to know that? All we need to know is that he got hit and he fell. But he tells us very explicitly he fell face first. His face hit the ground first. You want to know why I think that's significant? Because Genesis 3 verse 14 says this, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Goliath is presented as a giant scaly serpent who eats the dust. David's great enemy is a snake. Uh, the last thing we learned last uh, two weeks ago is that David fought for a great reward. Chapter 17, verse 25, And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. There was a great reward that David fought for. So those are some important reminders of things that we've already read. We haven't discussed them at this length, but we've read those things and seen those things. So let's now finish 1 Samuel 17. Let's finish David and Goliath, and then let's piece everything we've learned together, and let's try to find Jesus here. So if you would, open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 17, beginning in verse 38. And let me just warn you, uh, so far as we've been going through the 1 Samuel sermon series, so far we have not... Um, done a lot of jumping around. We've pretty much stayed in 1 Samuel. Today is one of those days we're going to be bouncing around a lot. So, you know, crack your knuckles, get your fingers warm. We're going to be turning a lot of pages today. But let's read and finish this great story. 1 Samuel chapter 17, beginning in verse 38. If you would, please follow along, for these are the very words of God. Then Saul clothed David with his armor, he put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. 
And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sha'ariim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistines, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, Inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Well, it's kind of hard to top that, what a story that is. So here's what I want us to do. It might be a little anticlimactic given this amazing victory we just saw, but I want us to keep going through what we just read and piecing together who David is. The elements of the text that David is really being, uh, they're emphasizing who David is, and then that will help us really piece something beautiful together. So some of the important things about David that we just finished reading is the first thing is that David's victory confounded human reasoning. Look with me at verse 47. David approaches Goliath, and he approaches him not as the world expects him to approach Goliath. You see, there are a lot of people who have done this kind of a thing before. They know how to fight battles. They know how to fight. And how do you win battles? You need heavy armor. Your shield is very important. Protecting your body is very important. You need heavy armor and you need a good sword. That's how you win fights. Everyone knows that. And David puts on all of this bronze armor. He puts on all of this serpent honor. And he says, I've never fought with this. It's going to throw me off my game. I've not practiced with this. I haven't tested with this. I'm uncomfortable. I don't want to fight as the serpent. I want to fight as the shepherd. So he rejects the sword, he rejects the spear, he rejects the coat of armor, and he goes to what he knows, which is his sling. These slings, by the way, are pretty amazing. People still use them today. 
Farmers in Afghanistan will oftentimes use these slings, and there are some people who just use them for fun. The sling, the shepherd's sling, was two pieces of rope that were attached with a little pocket to either side of this little pouch. And you would tie one side to your dominant hand, and then the other side would be loose, and you'd pinch it, and you'd hold it. And you put a rock in that pouch, and you swing it, centripetal force, centrifugal force, I don't know what it's called, something like that. And then you let go of the loose end of the rope, and it flings the rock. And you can look up YouTube videos. Uh, people are incredibly accurate with this thing. There are videos of, of people who, from my distance, they could easily hit the very center of that clock on the wall back there. Easily. I've seen people hit bottles from even further away. People can be unbelievably accurate with these slings. And if you have the right rock, they can be incredibly deadly. Because most of the time they're out in the wilderness and there's an emergency and so they're just picking up rocks and so these rocks are jagged or maybe it's too small or too big. But if you have time to find a perfect rock, uh, modern day people can get it anywhere. We've measured from 100 to 150 miles per hour. And you want to know it's the perfect kind of rock? Smooth. Something that doesn't have a lot of, uh, that the air, right, the, it doesn't stop it, doesn't slow its path. You want something smooth. And where do you find smooth rocks? Riverbeds, the water over time smooths them out. And there just so happened to be a, a river near this battle. So David is able to go and he picks the perfect rocks that he needs. He puts them in his pouch. And so he approaches Goliath, not with sword, not with spear, not with armor, but with a sling. And Goliath knows what slings are for. These slings are just to scare animals away from the sheep. So that's why he says, you come to me with sticks. What, am I a dog? Am I, want, am I just a little animal in the backyard you're trying to keep away from the chickens? Is that what you think of me? Goliath is insulted because Goliath knows what everyone else in Israel knows. This is not how you win battles. But David said that's the point. Verse 47. I'm doing this so that all the assembly may know the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. David's victory in order to prove that this is God's will was a victory that confounded human reasoning. It, it didn't make sense. It's not supposed to happen this way. Keep that in mind. We also see that David, how did he win? He won by crushing the head of his enemy. Look at verse 49. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. We are told twice the exact location that the stone hit. The stone hit Goliath in the head. It sank into his forehead and it sank. That, that's the crushing of the skull. Right? Things are not meant to sink into your brain. Right? Your skull has given way. He crushed his head. That's important. And then obviously, what did David do? When he did that, he saved God's people. By accomplishing this victory, he saved God's people. Look at verse 52. The men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron. They won the battle. They plundered their camp. David has saved Israel. So what do we know? David is Israel's savior. David is the savior of the people of God. David has won a victory that has given the corporate body a victory against their enemies. That's important. We also know that David, he didn't just crush Goliath's head. He also went out of his way to cut his head off. But notice, how do you cut someone's head off with a sling? Can't do it. 
They're good for long distance attack. They're not good for sawing and for cutting. So what did David have to do in order to cut Goliath's head off? Verse 51. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. So David humiliated and cut off the head of his enemy with his own enemy's weapon. In other words, he used the weapon of his enemy against him. That's also going to be important. And then one of the second last things I want us to see, David then went to mock and announce his triumph over his enemies in Jerusalem. Look at verse 54. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. Now here's why this is interesting. At this point in history, Jerusalem is not yet the holy city. As a matter of fact, at this point in time, Jerusalem does not even fully belong to Israel. The Jebusites are partial owners of Jerusalem at this time. So Jerusalem is kind of like this neutral city that has both good guys and bad guys in it. So David goes into quasi-enemy territory to, to strike fear into their enemies. He took the champion that everyone knew, and he brought his head into Jerusalem. And he said, this is Israel's God. He shamed his enemies, and he brought fear to his enemies in Jerusalem. And that's very important. And then as we also we saw earlier, David then won a great reward, which is why Saul needs to be reminded who is David's father, because now David's house is not going to be taxed, and David is going to get one of Saul's daughters. So how would I summarize 1 Samuel 16 and 17, just specifically focusing on what does the text tell us and show us about David? Here's my summary. David is God's anointed shepherd, chosen not by worldly reasoning, to crush the head of his serpent enemy, putting him to shame through unexpected means, all in order to save God's people and reap a great reward. You don't need to write that down, but I want to say it again. David is God's anointed shepherd, chosen not by worldly reasoning, to crush the head of his serpent enemy, putting him to shame through unexpected means, all in order to save God's people and reap a great reward. That is how I summarize the person of David in 1 Samuel 16 and 17. Every point that we've covered this morning, I brought it together into one paragraph. Now here's what I want us to do with the second half of our sermon. David is a type of Christ. I want us to see that 1 Samuel is establishing a storyline. It's establishing a story arc that would ultimately be fulfilled in the gospel narrative. In other words, as the Jewish people saw the gospel unfold before their eyes, if they really knew their Bibles and were spiritually awakened, they would say, you know what, this actually sounds kind of familiar. I feel like I've heard this story before. And why do I say that? Because everything the text has emphasized about David is true of Jesus. Turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. The book of Matthew begins with Jesus' genealogy. It seeks to prove that Jesus is a descendant of David and of Abraham because the Messiah had to be, so it was very important to prove that. And notice how the genealogy ends. Verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Does anyone's Bible say something other than Christ? Christ. 
Messiah. It's interesting. It probably should say Christ because that's the Greek word. Christos is there. So the Greek word there is literally the word Christ. In other words, have you ever asked, do you know why we call Jesus Jesus Christ? It's important that's not his last name, right? It's not like Colin Brooks, Jesus Christ. It's not his last name. Christ is a title. It's a title. That's why sometimes people will say Jesus the Christ. He's the Christ. It's a title. It's not a name. It's a title. Now, what does it mean? Well, Greek, or forgive me, Christos is the Greek translation of a Hebrew word, Messiah. And that's why some of your Bibles just cut out the Greek and put in the Hebrew meaning, Messiah. So to call Jesus Christ is the exact same thing to call him Jesus Messiah, just in a different language. He is Jesus Christ or he's Jesus Messiah. So we know that, that, that verse 16 is calling him Christ, which is calling him Messiah. So the question is, what does Messiah mean? Does anyone know what the Hebrew word Messiah means? Anointed one. Jesus is the anointed one. He's God's anointed one. Something we also saw of David. He told Samuel, go and anoint for me the man whom I will choose. Jesus is God's anointed one. But Matthew 1 tells us something important also. Look at verse 21. Speaking of Mary... Matthew says, she will bear a son, and then to Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. Jesus' name means God saves. So what was Jesus sent to do? To save the people of God. So what do we know about Jesus so far? He is the anointed one who saves God's people. What do we know about David so far? He is the anointed one who was sent to save God's people. But it doesn't end there. Why was Jesus chosen? Why Jesus? Well, there's a lot of answers to that. But let's answer the important why Jesus was not chosen. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 53. Isaiah chapter 53, beginning right at the beginning of the chapter. This is the great prophetic passage of the Messiah in the Old Testament. Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 1, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Was Jesus chosen because he's the strongest man that's ever lived? The tallest man that's ever lived? The most handsome man that's ever lived? According to his physical stature, was he the most glorious man that's ever lived? No, 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 no. He had no majesty, no beauty. There was nothing about the way he physically looked that would make you think there's anything significant about this guy. If all you did was just, if you were just a Jewish person living in Israel, living in Jerusalem or in Bethlehem, and you saw Jesus walking down the street, you would not think that must be the Son of God. He was just your average guy. And why should that sound familiar to you? What does the text explicitly tell us about David's anointing? Who did Samuel want to choose? The big, strong guy. And God said, don't choose the strong one. Choose the one that when everyone looked at him, he said, he's average. He must not be significant. David was not chosen because of his physical appearance. Jesus is not chosen because of his physical appearance. Another important thing, turn your Bibles to John chapter 10. 
Really, we, we could read pretty much this entire chapter to get the point across that I would like to get a point across. Um, but for time's sake, we won't do that. Let's just read, beginning in verse 7, John chapter 10, verse 7. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. How does John chapter 10 describe Jesus? Who is Jesus? He's a shepherd. Now, he's not vocationally a shepherd like David was. Vocationally, he was a carpenter. But spiritually, Jesus is our shepherd. And by the way, the word shepherd is where we get the word pastor. Jesus is the senior pastor of the Christian church. He is the lead shepherd of God's sheep. And there's even this illusion here of a courageous shepherd. A shepherd who does not flee when scary enemies approach, but lays down his life and goes after the enemies. And what are we supposed to recall there? That amazing young shepherd boy who the reason he was able to beat Goliath is because he was not a hired hand and he put his life on the line multiple times to save his sheep from their enemies. Jesus is a courageous, sacrificial shepherd, and that is immediately supposed to remind us of the most famous, courageous, sacrificial shepherd up until that point. You see, David is Jesus here. Jesus is a shepherd. David is a shepherd. But let's continue. Jesus' great enemy is a serpent. Jesus' great enemy is a snake. You don't have to turn there, but you see in Revelation chapter 12, the devil is explicitly referred to as a dragon. And that dragon is said to be slayed and conquered and cast into hell. The story of Jesus' gospel is slaying a dragon. He's a dragon slayer. He fights large serpents. But I, with the text I want us to see, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. To learn more about this dragon slayer hero. Genesis chapter 3. Let's read just verse 15. This is after the fall. This is after the curse was put on the devil, the serpent. And this is what God goes on to say. I will put, speaking to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So here is the first time in your entire Bible that the gospel is proclaimed. The first time the gospel is ever preached is a typological gospel presentation from the mouth of Yahweh himself to the devil. And as God is preaching the good news, the gospel, the way he presents it is by first telling us that Jesus' great enemy is going to be the serpent. There will always be this enmity between the serpent and the woman's offspring, the Messiah, and his people. So Satan is the great enemy against Jesus and against the people of God. 
There is enmity between the offspring and the people. And what is that offspring born of the woman going to do to the serpent? Crush his head. He will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The picture there is his heel coming down on the head. So his heel gets a bruise because he's hitting it so hard. The head is getting crushed. The first time the gospel is ever preached, it's preached in the terms of the Messiah crushing the head of a snake. That's the gospel. There's enmity between Satan and God. There's enmity between the serpent and the people of God. And the Messiah is going to come and crush his head. How did David kill his serpent? He crushed his skull. He crushed his head. We also see that Jesus is the way... That's typological, right? Jesus didn't actually just show up and step on a snake and then go home. Right? That's metaphor. That's typological. So let's get now down to brass tacks. How did Jesus actually destroy his enemy? Because I, I, I want to, 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 to ask us to try to do something very difficult. I want us to try to transport ourselves into the garden. And you hear this message, this gospel, that one day the special offspring of a woman is going to destroy the serpent. What images would come to your mind, especially after an image of him crushing his head? You would think of like war, of conflict, of violence, of battle, of blood. You would think of like David and Goliath, but in reverse. Jesus shows up and he's the nine foot tall, knight in shining armor, and he crushes that little snake. How did Jesus crush the head of his enemy? Through warfare? Through armor? Hebrews chapter 2. Turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14. This is one of the most peculiar Bible verses. But because we know the gospel so well, it doesn't strike us as odd. It's not bizarre to us. But I promise you, if you're uninitiated to the Christian faith, this is such a weird Bible verse. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. How did Jesus win? By losing. He won by losing. Does that make sense? It doesn't. But you know what else doesn't make sense? Trying to fight Goliath with a slingshot. It doesn't make sense. It's not supposed to make sense. So that we might know that God is the one who lives in Israel. How did Jesus crush the head of his serpent? By being crushed. What kind of a battle plan is that? Can you imagine you join the military? You're drafted. You're in the military. And they say, okay, guys, uh, we're about to go on our first mission. And it's really, really important that we win. Uh, the, our nation's security depends on it. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to lay our weapons down and let them shoot us. Yeah, can I request a transfer, please? Not interested in that kind of a victory. That doesn't sound like victory to me at all. As a matter of fact, that sounds like surrender. That sounds like losing. And yet here comes Jesus. He shows up. I'm the Son of God. I'm the Messiah. I'm here to conquer your enemies. Great, Jesus. You and what army? Oh, no, no army. Here's how it's going to happen. Uh, I'm going to be betrayed by one of my closest friends. And then I'm going to get arrested. And then I'm going to be persecuted. And then I'm going to be tortured. And then I'm going to be murdered. And then I'm going to die. And you're going to bury my dead body in a tomb. 
Jesus, no offense, but that doesn't sound like winning. That sounds an awful lot like losing. Now, I understand the resurrection is obviously victorious, and the resurrection is crucial to the gospel, but notice here, the text emphasizes the death of Christ as the victory. It's the death part that's the victory in this text. Jesus crushed Satan by dying for sins. Doesn't that confound human reasoning? We're not expecting our champion, our warrior, our fighter, our soldier to come here and die, but that's exactly what he came here to do. He fought in the way no one expected. He won in the way no one expected. Just like David stepped onto that battlefield and everyone thought, what are you doing? It doesn't work like this. This is not what victory looks like. But God loves to confound the human reasoning of men so that we know it's his work. How boring would the story of David and Goliath be if the roles were reversed? How boring would it be if David was the nine-foot-tall, armor-bearing champion, and, and the Philistines sent out some young, young, tiny little boy, and David goes out there and stabs him and then leaves? Would we have any cause to worship God and celebrate God? I mean, theologically, we would, but it would be hard to see that this is God's victory. It would be easy to say, this is just his victory because he's way bigger and way stronger and way better equipped. But David tells us, I'm going to do this in an unorthodox manner so you know it's God's will. And what we see in the gospel is Jesus accomplishes a victory that no one anticipated and expected. And that helps reaffirm for us, this is the work of God. Jesus didn't come down here with an angelic army and just slaughter people. He defeated death through death. And, by the way, this brings up two very important, relevant points to David as well. Because how does verse 14 describe the devil? Who is the devil? He is the one who has the power over death. Satan owns death. Death belongs to Satan. Death is Satan's power. Death is Satan's weapon. Death belongs to Satan. It's his power. It's his weapon. And how did Jesus conquer Satan? With death. What is death? Satan's weapon. So how did Jesus conquer Satan? By taking his weapon from him and using it against him. What does that sound like? How did David cut off Goliath's head? With Goliath's weapon. David said, you know what? I don't need to bring weapons to this fight because I'm going to take yours. And Jesus showed up saying, I don't need to bring weapons to this fight because I'm going to take yours. And he took Satan's greatest weapon and he wrested it from his hands and he slaughtered Satan with it. He cut off Satan's head with his own sword. You see, if you think about the cross, before the resurrection happens, what does the cross look like? The cross looks like the greatest victory Satan has ever accomplished. The Messiah shows up, born of a virgin, fulfills the prophecies, and he's here to save the people of God. And what does Satan do? He gets him killed. It looks like Satan wins. But then Jesus resurrects and we find out that sins have been atoned for, and now Satan loses. So killing Jesus, it seemed like the best thing Satan could have done, but it actually ended up being the worst thing he could have done. He signed his own death certificate. He built his own construction and tied his own noose and hung himself with his own hangman's noose. He is the one who has power of death. And Jesus says, thank you, I'll take that weapon and I'll destroy you with it. Just like David. 
And by the way, where did all of this take place? The Colossians tells us that in, the, in Colossians chapter 2, we are told that Jesus' death and resurrection was Jesus' way of humiliating his enemies, putting his enemies to shame by triumphing over them. So what Jesus did when he died and he rose again is he publicly shamed and humiliated his enemies. And that's exactly what David did by carrying Goliath's head around. Remember, he put the armor in the tent. He says, this is kind of a nice keepsake, a, a reminder. I'll keep this. But this head here, this severed head, has a different purpose. And it's to mock, humiliate, and, and, and strike fear into my enemies. He triumphed over them valiantly. And where specifically did he take the head of his enemy? To the exact same city, the exact same town, where Jesus humiliated his enemies in Jerusalem. Jesus humiliated his enemies in the same town David humiliated his enemies. They both humiliated them in Jerusalem. One of the last things I want us to see is that David fought for a great reward. And so did Jesus. Sometimes we're uncomfortable to say that because we think it makes Jesus sound less self-sacrificial. That's not true at all. Jesus was not just coming to earth for our glory but to obey his father and to receive the reward that his father wanted him to receive. Turn to the book of Philippians, chapter 2. Philippians, chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. After explaining to us that Jesus took on flesh and humbled himself to become a servant and to die, even to die a death on a cross. In verse 8, this is what he says in verse 9, the Apostle Paul. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is, that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus' victory earned him exaltation. It earned him reward. He has been made the Lord of lords because of his great victory. And someone remind me, what was one of the incentives for David to fight? Reward. Exaltation. Another interesting little tidbit. One of that reward was a wife. Who did Jesus save unto himself? God's people, the church. What does Paul call the church in Ephesians chapter 5? The bride of Christ. There's a pastor I follow who jokingly said that when his kids were really young, and they asked him, Daddy, what is the Bible about? How do you summarize the whole Bible? You know what he would tell them? It's about a hero who slays the dragon and gets the girl. It's about a hero who comes to rescue the damsel in distress by slaying her dragon. That's the gospel. Jesus came for the bride. He came for God's people, for his bride, for his church. He came to save the girl. And how did he do it? By stepping on the head of a serpent, by throwing a dragon into hell. Jesus came to slay a dragon and save the girl. David showed up in that battlefield to slay a dragon and save God's people. Jesus showed up to crush the serpent and save God's people. Are you seeing the parallels? So let me do this. How would I summarize the gospel according to all these verses we've looked at? Well, this is how I would summarize it. Jesus is God's anointed one. 
the shepherd of God's people, chosen not by worldly standards, to crush the head of the serpent, putting him to shame through unexpected means, all in order to save God's people and reap a great reward. Does that sound familiar? I'll give you a hint. It's the exact same summary we gave David, just with a different name. You just take David's summary and replace Jesus' name, and you've got the same story. So what is 1 Samuel 16 and 17 doing? It's typologically painting a picture of the gospel. Why do we need to learn about this shepherd who saved God's people from their sins? Because this shepherd is a type of the greater shepherd who would conquer a greater enemy to save God's real, true, universal people. Now, none of this invalidates everything we've learned the last few weeks. The Old Testament can do multiple things at one time. So in other words, here's what I don't want you to think. Well, okay, if the whole story is ultimately about Jesus and the gospel, then why did we spend two weeks learning about other things? Why didn't we just learn about Jesus and the gospel? Isn't that what the story's about? But Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that the Old Testament stories were written down for our instruction that we might learn from them. So even though the Old Testament is about Jesus, that doesn't mean that that's the only thing we ever see in there. There are other applications. There are other things. Paul's very clear. Why are these stories written down? So that we might see them and learn from them. So when you read through your Old Testament and someone does something really dumb, you learn, I'm not going to be like that person. And when you read through your Old Testament, you see someone do something really courageous and faithful. You think, I'm going to be like that. It was written for our instruction. So that's the part we've covered to this point. How has David instructed us? And we've seen David has a zeal for the Lord that we need to have. And David has a courage built from his faith that we need to have. And David has a reasonable faith, not a reckless faith. And we need to have David has taught us many life applications. And it's okay to see those things. It's, we're supposed to see those things. But the most important thing we need to see in 1 Samuel 16 and 17, is the gospel. This amazing story of God sending his son into the world to be our champion. We need to see and understand that Jesus is the new and better David. Jesus is our champion, our victor, our warrior, our conqueror, our defender, our protector, our strong tower, our bulwark our mighty fortress.